On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, it's from the pandemic to the protests and back to the pandemic again. What a time in our country. It is difficult to watch some of the things that we do. It is difficult to see the things we have, to observe the conditions that some people, mainly black people, have lived under. But we're going to do our best to address them today with my friend and colleague at ESPN, Marcus Spears, the father of three children, ages 13, 11, and 7. And then we were going to go on to the pandemic and address what's going on in the NFL with the NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills. For further conversation, you can tune into the Jalen and Jacoby Show podcast, which continues this Sunday following 30 for 30's B. Water, a documentary about Bruce Lee. In 1971, after being rejected by Hollywood, Bruce Lee returned to his parents' homeland of Hong Kong to complete four iconic films. Charting his struggles between two worlds, this portrait explores questions of identity and representation through the use of rare archival interviews with loved ones and Bruce's own writings. And a reminder that all 30 for 30 documentaries can be streamed on ESPN+. Before we get to my friend Marcus Spears, first a word from AT&T. I know there's a lot going on right now in the world, and we're all shopping online. I just saw that AT&T started doing two really helpful things for those who want to buy a new phone or device online. They're offering fast, free, no-contact delivery, and curbside pickup so that online shopping is as simple and safe as possible. On top of that, they have flexible return policies, so you can shop at ease. You can visit AT&T.com to learn how to shop online from the safety of your home 24-7, subject to change, restrictions apply. And now to address what's going on in the world, at least from his perspective, we bring in the ESPN analyst, the former NFL defensive lineman, my friend, my colleague, Marcus Spears. Marcus, I reached out for a few different reasons. I reached out because I saw your emotional speech on Get Up yesterday. And we're going to get to that. And I reached out because I wanted to ask you, we've seen so many instances in this country that have just been wrong. Freddie Gray, Tafan Clark, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Ahmaud Arbery. What was different this time with George Floyd? Shefty, uh, first of all, appreciate you having me, man, because I, I think it's very important, um, like you said, my brother, um, to have this discussion. And, and I would tell you out of all of those things, as, as horrific as they were, um, especially in the black community, this uprising, uproar has been kind of the cry. But I think George Floyd was different because this this humanized, this this broke a spirit in a lot of people in this country. This was this was like a lynching in in the public square of and and the ending of it shouldn't have ended that way. Um this was humanity being challenged. Um you know and we we know the the things that exist in this country, racism, systematic oppression and um we know there has been good people on the side of right and I think this this was the evolution of um, right and wrong, moral, 
um, immoral. This this was different. And for me, I felt it because I immediately got a lot of texts, a lot of questions from friends, colleagues that were white about how horrific it was and how they how they felt about the situation. And you could kind of tell that this one struck a nerve with good people in general. And I think I think this is um you know George Floyd's um murder was something that really hit the conscience of good people to finally say this is going on. White people said this is real. This is not um some propped up statistic and we not going to pull out black on black crime, white on white crime. Um, more police kill white people than black people. A, a, a lot of people threw that to the side and said, we continue to see this happening in this country. And the 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 part that makes you furious as as a black community is most of these, um, most of the time, the consequences are not there. And they would be there for any other person. Um, so... I think a lot of it, man, but I, I think the human card was struck. I think people's spirits were broken. And I think people woke up to an ugly reality in this country. White people um, woke up to a reality that even though they did not like racism and they did not like the idea of systematic oppression and they did not think it was as bad um, because it's 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 a defense mechanism. It makes you feel like the black community is attacking you. And for a long time, we, we've been trying to say, this is not what we're doing. We're asking you to help and have the same type of vigor towards this as you have towards issues that affect you personally, affects your family personally, or in our case, affects your culture and your demographics. So if you look across these protests, if you look at what's transpiring in America right now, um, minus the looting and burning of people's property, which I don't, I haven't met one person that condones that I've met. And I too stand in the, in the uh, circle of people that understand the, the emotion and the strife um, and, and how you, how people are releasing that anger. And then some people are just agitators and doing foolish, dumb things. Um, trying to hijack the the what what is really supposed to be transpired. But if you look at the demographic of people out there in the streets protesting and standing on the front lines, and police officers taking knees, and and a community starting to unfold, I think there are some positive things we could take out of what we've been seeing in this country. We also have to recognize that that this problem has now come to a head, and leadership in this country is not where it should be either. Do you think that this would have gotten the attention it did if it hadn't been captured? Because when you watch the video of that, and I'm so glad that the people are on mm-hmm. the scene to record that message, because you, you can't look at that. All four officers, it's just unbelievable. It, it, every time I watch yeah. it, yeah. I get more and more sick. It blows me away. And I had yeah. a conversation with somebody yesterday. We were talking about it. And just think that. This is not anti-police. Like, uh, you know, you, you, when you put something on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, I see people complaining. I'm like, no, you, you're missing the point. 
Like, the, right. the, the, this is so horrific. And I think there are bad apples in all walks of life. And people no who question. Don't, don't behave. In this particular case, what these men, and I put them all together, Derek Siobhan, yeah. disgraceful. But the other guys are just sitting there and allowing it to happen. It was, no question. It's, it's maddening to watch it. Complicit. Complicit. It's just maddening Definitely. to I'm, watch it. And, and, and I'm, so I'm I, charged. I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Marcus. I'm charged to challenge you when I see you doing wrong. Because that's human. I should do that. And I think what, what people saw was just this egregious oh. um, response, reaction, non-emotional. Uh, it's almost like the souls of them guys weren't there. Um, especially when you hear a man saying, I can't breathe. We had the air guard in the situation. And, you know, it was – well, we, you know, the the tactics were bad, and you shouldn't do that. And if you can talk, you can breathe. They had a um, mayor in Mississippi say that. Um, the problem with that is, what are you going? If if you can muster up the breath, if you know you feel your life being snatched away from you, and you're handcuffed and face down on the ground, your expectation as a human is for somebody else to have empathy for that, and for all three of those officers. To, all three of the other officers outside of Derek Chauvin did not have empathy for the fact that a man was dying. Like you said, they are just as responsible as complicit. And that is the cry of why I think, and a lot of people in this country think all four uh, should be arrested and charged with, with, with something. Um, but yeah, Chef, listen, man, I, yesterday when I did get up, I had no intentions of getting emotional about that situation Um, because I was already angry and furious and I was more angry and furious than sad. And then my son asked me, dad, why didn't they get up off of me? And then I realized the innocence of my son, the veil that's kind of been pulled over his eyes because he's lived in nice neighborhoods and he's been around white people and black people that get along and he plays basketball and baseball with white kids, and to him, they're just his friends. This ugly world that we know exists out here um, at, at some points, and the one I knew about growing up at his age is just totally different. And I was not ready to have a conversation with him about that. The, re- the reality is, as a black father, I'm going to have to, and I had to, but that's the part that got me, man. So what do you tell him? I told him, I said, look, man, there's realities in this world. And it, it makes me sad to even say, but I told him, I said, you cannot, um, based on this country we live in, you cannot operate like your white friends operate. There are certain things they're going to be able to do and get away with that you can't get away with. Um, there are certain ways you have to carry and conduct yourself that in certain situations, they may not have to abide by those same rules. There are things you're going to experience um, when you go into a store. My son is going to be tall. Um, there are certain things you're going to experience. People may feel threatened because of how you look when you're in an elevator or you walking through a store. People may be under the assumption that you can't pay for what you're looking at. Um, and this is this is the systems that I'm talking about, Chef. And look, it's uncomfortable to talk about, man, but these are the realities. My mom had to tell me. Hey, you big, 
you're black, you make sure you conduct yourself in the right manner. You have to do things differently. You don't want to be threatening the people. You don't want to put people in a situation where they feel like they're uncomfortable. And in my mind as a kid, I'm like, I'm the nicest person in the world. Like I talk to anybody. Um, so I didn't necessarily understand it at the time she was telling me, but as I grew, um, and as I matured and I saw people nervous about getting on the elevator or nervous about me being in the close range vicinity or being followed at a store or police officers pulling me over in Baton Rouge, uh, before I was able to get to Dallas to my city because I, he didn't feel like I should be driving a Range Rover. Like, I, I mean, listen, man. It is reality, and I think a lot of people are just waking up to it. Now, you're the father of three. You have two daughters, yes. one son. Your two daughters are 13 and 7. Your son's 11. Have you mm-hmm. had to have any kind of conversations, similar messages to your daughters that you've had with your son, or you're not as concerned? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my daughter right now is 13. She's 6'1", um, a wow. tremendous volleyball player. And I'm too, you know, me and her mom, we're super proud of her, but yes. Jeffy, listen, man, you know me and you know how our conversations go and we don't hold back. The reality of it is, and as sad as it sounds, the color of my children's skin forces me to raise them different. That doesn't change from boy to girl, um, personality differences. Because they're black, I got to raise them different in this country. And right now, people all over this world, all over this country, is fighting for that not to be the case. So I'm proud of this movement outside of the things that are, are just distasteful and should be happening. I'm proud of this movement because my kids may – maybe the conversation gets to a point where you don't have to have it, or maybe it gets to a point where you can have it, and my kids come back and say, Dad, it's not like that in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. Um that's what I'm hoping for. But until it is, or until they come back and tell me that, I got to raise them different because they're black, they're black people and they're black children. And they'll be black adults in this country right now that at times when you meet the wrong person or you go into a, a job or you go into a facility, um, people might not like you just because you walk through the door and your skin tone and your skin color and because you may be tall and threatening and all of that, man. So I got to raise them that way, Shefty. And it sucks because, look, man, it's funny, right? I played sports. My kids play sports. So it'll help them. They'll have a different perspective. You and I, you my brother, I call you that. We hung out. We we had a chance to talk. This This is simply a heart condition. Are you willing to get to know me before you judge me? And that's where, that's that's the disease of racism. I've already formulated opinions about you before ever having a conversation with you based on something that I was told, taught, or something that I just want to feel. And then it festers and becomes a part of people's DNA. And that's hard to change because that's a hard condition at that point. And that's what we are trying to eradicate at this point as a society. Do you have any hopes and any confidence that this can be the tipping point, that this will be? The incident that does spark the change that is needed, do you think that that's going to happen, Marcus? Jeffy, I do. And you call me optimistic or whatever. And I know, you know, here's another thing that is deeply rooted because we've had generations of black people in this country that thought 
that it was seminal moments that would change things. Um, and things got better, but better is better to me is thrown around in the wrong context. Better can still be bad. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's this to me and what I'm seeing, I go back to what I was saying earlier. I think we have a generation of young people, um, and maybe not in you and I's lifetime, or maybe when we old and gray and we sitting up watching our kids have um, a more unified front, more peaceful, and understanding each other a lot more because they've grown up a different way. They've grown up in a different world. Um, we, we can be proud that we at least had voices and did something in regard to them living a better life. So, yes, I think it can be. Um, I want it to be better and get to the point where it's the norm. I'm not sure if it ever get that way because I think to get a little bit deeper but not go in the weeds, I think at the foundation of this country, you have to go back to that. Um, you know, Shefty, when when the people like to go back to the Constitution, and, and by default, I say, yes, all men are created equal to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and by default, black people were able to use that. But at the time that that was written, black people weren't considered to be people. They were considered to be property. So that's a part of the foundation. But we can use that and 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 the profoundness of that. And, uh, and our forefathers, I don't know if they meant it that way, because at the time, like I said, black people weren't considered people. But at the same time, it eventually evolved into black people being under that umbrella. And then you had to fight civil rights and we got the Voting Rights Act and Jim Crow was disbarred and all of these things. So laws and, and pressure and voting. And that's why you hear the black community say so much. We got to get out and vote because the representation in those power circles is what changes things. But I think this generation interacting um, to me is more cohesive. My, my niece graduated from high school. Uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, and at that graduation, so many different races, backgrounds, children that look different, um, and and you see this, um, you see what this looks like as far as America, the idea of a melting pot, and everybody coming here to be successful and doing it. And I don't know if it's changing. I don't know if because things are crazy and wild right now that I'm trying to look at it through a lens of. This next generation understands and they are starting to figure it out and they have more of a rapport. But when I look out there in them streets, Jeffy, at these rallies and these protests and these riots, a lot of white people in there, a lot of black people, Indian. It makes you feel good. You can't you can't be a compassionate, empathetic person Mm -hmm. and not recognize that something is not right. That this is wrong. And again, if there's one expression I've told my 11-year-old daughter over and over more than anything, and we could bring her in right now and I would ask her, what have I said to you more than anything else? She would say, treat people the way you want to be treated. I've said it to her a thousand times. There you go. And I I come back to that. And again, I'm a white guy and I haven't grown up in the world that you have or other people Mm -hmm. have, but it is as simple as... And I would say this to those police officers in Minneapolis, police officers anywhere. And I want to say again, I've got a lot of friends who are police officers, and they're good people, a lot of them. Yeah. And you get those yep. incidents like that, which is completely abhorrent, 
and you just treat people the way you would want to be. Would I want exactly. those officers acting that way around any person? No. Right. No. Right. Now, now, right. were they? And by the way, those guys, Marcus, you know, obviously you do a lot of reading up on these things. Yeah. They had multiple, multiple incidents of yeah. aggression. And Derek Chavon yeah. was involved in a fatality, a shooting, and had, I think, 17 incidents. Incidents, of, yeah. Of yeah. whatever you want to call them, okay? Whatever you want to call them. I don't, you know. Chef, and and, and the people the that are on the scene with them, too, multiple. So that is the, can, that is the crime. Be allowed to, how can they be allowed? They're not treating people the right way. Yes. Yes, and and it's and and this energy that you have right now, or that, is the energy that it's going to take in order for law enforcement to be held accountable. Chester, my sister is a police officer; she's in law enforcement. And when this took place, I said, "Your job just got harder," as if it's not hard already. Right. And being in my position, I'm like, "Listen, this." Just walk out of the uh, precinct, and I got you. We'll figure out what you want to do. But in the meantime, I got you. And she said, if it's no good officer, or if it's not officers in the community that's affecting change and doing things the right way, then we are just going to be stuck with guys that want to be police officers and can go rogue and do what they want to do. And then I challenged her. I said, so where is the stance when things like this go on? And she said, Internally, it's difficult because a lot of this stuff is not um, a lot of uh, stuff like this is obvious. But a lot of things that officers do are not for other officers, public knowledge. They don't know about a lot of these incidences, these reportings and filings. And I said, well, it's going to take cops, police chiefs, legislation, legislator, legislators to make things known. When a football player goes out on the field and plays a terrible game, guess who knows, Shefty? The whole world. Yeah, exactly. They know it, right? We come in the studios and we break stuff down and we talk about how terrible that player was yeah. on that Sunday. And and you begin to build your profile based on how you play or you make some egregious action and it's how you it's who you are at that point. Um, I give you a perfect example. We we were having um Chef, them, the name is eluding me. The linebacker that was with Cincinnati that had all of the head, the head um, hits, and then he was in Oakland. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. But, but, but at some point, you and I won't get up. At some point, that that becomes who you are. Like we got to start believing that that is who you are, instead of continuing to say, "Well, no, nah, he just made a mistake." Or he just continues to do this, but it's okay. It's not that bad. And then at some point, you got your knee on somebody's neck and they die. Like Dante's perfect. Like Dante's perfect. Dante's perfect. Dante's perfect. It took seventeen times. Right. That's the that's the that's the that's the anger. It's right. seventeen times before it's a, you it's guys. A great, you know out. what? He was allowed to get away with it at first, and then you start exactly. to clamp down on it, and then you say, "This is unacceptable." It, right, it, and and yes, and and it's like, and and then there's this segment of people that's like, well, no, he not re- yes, he is, he's that guy, that's right. who he right. is. Um, so you know me, you know me, I, I'm a 
I'm a real either either or guy, Shefty. I don't get all deep, yeah. and I don't. You showing me who you are, man. And I think for now, um, people have had enough of bad police officers showing who they are, and they're challenging good cops to call bad police officers out on who they are, because internally, you know, the team doesn't get better until the players take responsibility. And that's what's going on in this country. Police officers, good cops, have to take responsibility for bad cops and make sure they get them rooted out because they're around them every day. Period. Just just like the players in Cincinnati when Vontaze Burfick was there, they yes. have to rise up and police him in their own way. Police like Marvin him. Lewis. Like, dude, what are you doing? Man. Yes. Yes. Yes, man. Your, your sister's a good cop, right? Oh, absolutely. Or she wouldn't be one. <laughs> Where is she a cop? She's in uh she's a cop in Bedford, Texas. Um and my sister is actually a community the community liaison for that police department. Um so she actually goes out and and builds relationships with people in the community. Now she's at a uh she's at Frisco. She's in Frisco, Texas now at the police department. And gonna, she's not went back to traffic, but ultimately that's the role she wants to be in because, dude, there are, there are police out there doing great work, man. Great work trying to build bridges and build these relationships. And the problem is, Shifty, they gotta be loud, they gotta be vigilant, and they have to take responsibility for their community as far as police officers. When they see this type of stuff happen, it does not need to be a public outcry. It does not need to be people feeling scared, especially black people feeling scared of encounters with the police. If the police around them say we are not doing things that way. And if you do, there's a hefty price to pay as far as your job, prison time, loss of wages, whatever they decide to do. But it's going to have to come from within the police got to police the police because they they just they humans and you're gonna have some bad humans in any segment of whatever businesses we talking about but it's up to the people within those segments to to get them right or get them out and you know what there are bad people in all businesses all no businesses. questions right yeah, we know it we know it we see it um on every level and if people don't speak up man like my kids do something, I chastise them because I don't want them to have all of these built up uh, acts of being bad and doing things the wrong way. That's only going to translate to who they are as adults. That's only going to translate into the way that they conduct themselves. So you got to, you got to chastise people. It's difficult. Stepping on toes is hard, man, but I don't give a damn about that. You know me, I'm going to tell you when it's wrong and I'm going to stay that way because I don't want people I've always said my kids in sports, I coach my son in basketball. Um, I'm tough on my kids in sports. And the reason I'm tough on them is because a coach that they run up on in high school or college is going to be tough on them. And I don't want them to look back and say, Daddy, you didn't prepare me for this. Like, I don't know how to respond to a person hollering at me um, and not loving on them, but also being being strict and stern. And that's the that's. That's just the reality. That's the reality of what they are choosing to do. So they got to abide by by how that thing is facilitated, man. 
Well, let's hope the message gets out. Let's hope that yeah, man, these actions matter, that none of this happens again, that there are no more Freddie Grays and Stephon Clarks and Michael Browns yes, and Trayvon Martins and George Floyds. And uh, I want to thank you for your transparency, honesty, heart. You're all heart, my friend. That, that's what you are. You're always my brother. And, and, and I appreciate I you, Shifty. Thank love you, Marcus. You too, my man. And there is a man who, as I mentioned, is all heart. One of the nicest men in our business, one of the most talented men in our business. And I believe a guy who has the potential to have the same broadcasting career trajectory as Charles Barkley. That's how good Marcus Spears is. That's how thoughtful he is. That's how entertaining he is. He's got a huge future to go along with that huge heart that you just heard right there. Before we get to the NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills, with his assessment of where we're at in the NFL these days, first a word from State Farm. With real guidance and the right coach, NBA teams go from good to great. Just like real help from your State Farm agent can make all the difference in protecting what matters most. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help guide you through whatever life throws your way. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And now, the NFL's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Alan Sills. Dr. Sills, what is life like for you these days? It is not dull, Adam. How's that? Uh, yeah. It's been, uh, been a whirlwind, just like everybody in all phases of life. We're all trying to find our way through and, and look how we can work through things sequentially and uh, make good decisions based on the evolving medical science and working a lot together collaboratively, certainly working a lot collaboratively with the NFL Players Association, their medical advisors, and all of our experts. So lots of phone calls, lots of Zoom meetings, but uh, but moving forward. Where are we in that process? Because we have entered the month of June. We're starting to hear of other sports taking baby steps to getting back underway, potentially the NBA, the NHL. Golf will be in action next week with the PGA Tour. Where are we with the NFL right now, Dr. Sills? Well, we're in the same position, Adam, that we're starting to uh, incrementally move forward, looking at what we can do to to move towards our season. Um, One of the mantras that I've used uh, throughout this is that we want to have the approach of walk, then jog, then run. So we're very much in the walk phase, which is slowly moving forward to uh, reopen our business. So we uh, started with the opening of the club facilities. As you're aware, a lot of the teams have been able to get back in for non-football, non-player activities. I think hopefully the next phase of that, we'll we'll see coaches and, and other football personnel getting in. And then we're working very, very closely with the Players Association, again, their medical advisors, at looking about when we feel it's uh, safe and appropriate to open the facilities for football team activities and what that will look like, what those protocols will look like. But we're doing all that, as I said, in a very stepwise fashion, uh, being very cautious and thinking about the science and evaluating how each step goes um, so that we can uh, do all that we can to mitigate risk and to do so safely. When could you see coaches being able to return to work, Dr. Sills? Yeah, I think that's obviously a, a league decision, but it's, I think, centered around making sure that, that everyone has the same opportunity. You know, equity in the league is a very big thing, so I think we wouldn't want to do that until coaches can be at all buildings uh, at the same time. So uh, that one happens above my pay grade, but I would say that uh, <laughs> we're working in that direction, and uh, hopefully it happens uh, in the near term. You mentioned walking, then jogging, then running. Last week I had an interesting conversation with a coach, And he was saying to me, I don't understand how this is going to be done. And he was saying, we're going to have to stand side by side, linemen across from each other in a huddle 
men talking, breathing, sweating all over each other. How can this be done? And I guess I would turn that around, being that your knowledge is a lot more extensive than mine, is how is this going to be done? How are men going to stand next to each other in a huddle? How are they going to line up across from each other on the line of scrimmage? How are they going to be able to do those sorts of things, Dr. Sills? Well, I think you've pointed out one of the obvious challenges, Adam, which is that football and physical distancing really don't go together, right? It's impossible to maintain physical distance when you're playing the game of football, and that's true for many other sports as well. But I think we have to look at the incremental other types of activity that that can happen. Um, If you talk about the walk-jog-run approach, you know, what about the conditioning aspects? We know that with players having missed uh, so much time, there's going to be an extended need to, to, to train and to get bodies back in shape for the kind of uh, exertion that professional sports entails. So, so there are, there are certainly a lot of activities uh, that teams do that don't involve getting in a huddle or getting on a line of scrimmage from each other. And I think that those are the places that you start and you do so with mitigation strategies. You do so with physical distance, you do so with personal protective equipment, with disinfection, sterilization, all those procedures. Certainly, as you then approach team-based activities, I think that's where we and the Players Association together are looking at what can we do to mitigate and, uh, and minimize those risks. But I think that's where testing will also come into play. We're also going to have to have a very robust testing program in place um, to, to attempt to do a surveillance and identify anyone who might be infected at the earliest possible stage and, and and, and not um, uh, not not continue on in participating. So so there are a lot of steps that have to be done. And, and again, I, I think we just want to do that in a sequential and thoughtful way that again meets the the, the public health standards and what our our scientific experts are telling us. Certainly, when right you, now, again, health and safety on both sides are leading the way here. When you talk about all these steps that have to happen and all the work that will go into bringing back the sport that we love, could you ever have imagined that we would be in a position like we are today? I don't think any of us could have seen this, but but one of the wonderful things I think about the NFL is how resilient it's been. I mean, as you know, we celebrated our 100-year anniversary last year, so that means the NFL has been around through world wars and and a lot of social unrest and economic challenges and and many, many different facets of American life. And so um, I think in that sense, the league has been resilient, but that's because our, our people love and care what they do. Um, we have uh, fantastic athletes that, um, you know, have spent years preparing and getting to this stage. We have outstanding coaches and, and, and administrative staff and medical staff. And so I, I have a lot of confidence that all of those units working together will be able to find a path forward and, 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 and find a way to deal with these challenges that are in front of us right now. And I think one example you saw with that was the NFL draft this year. Obviously, at a time when, when everyone was under shelter at home orders, how could we create an event? that would allow us to do the, the business of football, but still be safe. And, and I think through the efforts, again, collaboratively, a whole lot of people working together, uh, we were able to do that and, and to have an event that was quite memorable. And let me say this, the NFL did do a great job with the draft. It was a rousing success, much to the surprise of people like myself and other coaches and general managers who didn't think that it would be able to be pulled off. But it was, and the NFL does deserve a lot of credit for that. But is it not that much more difficult to pull off an actual game where men are going to be in such close proximity to one another, lining up with each other like we talked about? Doesn't that become infinitely more challenging, Dr. Sills? Absolutely. There's no question that's a challenge, uh, just like travel and, and uh, you know, a lot of aspects of the normal operations of what we would do in our games would be. But 
but we're not in a different place in many ways from many other businesses and units of society, schools that are going to be confronting these same issues. So I think we're all in the same place of, again, how can we, how can we move forward safely and responsibly? Um, how, how can we do so with medically grounded protocols and let science dictate us, uh, dictate to us what we should be doing? But each of these steps is challenging, but I think we also, Adam, learn a lot more along the way. Uh, you mentioned some of the other professional sports leagues around the world that are starting back. We have regular conversations with them. In fact, uh, in, in a few minutes after you and I finish this interview, I'll be talking with leaders of some of the pro sports leagues internationally and, and learning about what they've done, what they're, where, where they're seeing opportunities for improvement. So, so we're all going to learn from each other. And, and over the course of the next few months as we approach our season, <clears throat> I think we'll have a lot more knowledge that will help guide us in some of these decisions. And along those lines, if we see basketball come back and we see hockey being played, Will there be things that you and the National Football League will be able to pick up from what those sports are doing and apply to football so that there will be a greater chance that it is not only played, but it's played safely? Absolutely. I'm in regular communication multiple times each week with the chief medical officers of Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Soccer. And so we're all working together to, to, to leverage our skills and experience around these areas, and, and there's tremendous collaboration, cooperation, and that's true not just on the medical side, but other, other sides of the league as well. So we are all in this together, and we will learn from each other, and I think that absolutely uh, there will be things that, that we'll gain from those experiences of those other leagues, and as I mentioned, other leagues around the world that will help inform us and help put us in a better place uh, as we approach the fall. I think the other thing to keep in mind, Adam, is I've been saying to people that if you asked everyone how long has it been since we shut down, it, it probably feels like, what do you think, five, seven years ago that we've been doing this? Uh, the reality is it's, it's under three months. And, and, and while that feels like an eternity to us, uh, that's actually a period of time that is shorter than the period of time from now until the start of our season. And so I say that only to say there's a lot of time in front of us where we're going to learn we're going to be um, increasing our knowledge about this virus, about the epidemiology, about transmission, about treatment, about prevention, all of those things. If you think about how much ground we've gained in a couple of months' time, there's that much time in front of us to, to put those learnings uh, to work uh, for the good of a safer operation of our sport come fall. And, Dr. Sills, we've talked about the players here, and I've asked you about standing in a huddle and standing across the line of scrimmage from one another, but I don't think many people have raised this question, and it's come up to me a few different times. There are some older coaches in the National Football League, Pete Carroll, Bill Belichick, and this is a virus that seems to find and flock to older people. Is there concern on the league's part for some of the older coaches who are around the game and will be around many of these young men if and when the games and practices do resume. How much conversation has there been about what it would be like for an older coach to be back in his sport? Well, I'm really glad, Adam, that you're the one naming coaches as older because, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to get into that game. So I, I appreciate <laughs> you doing that for me. But uh, no, listen, we, we certainly are aware of that because uh, you, you, you have articulated a really key issue, which is that in, in, in thinking about risk here, this isn't just about players only, but it is about coaches and medical staff and support staff and the people that, as we term it, are going to be in the in the team's ecosystem, meaning who's going to be around each other every day, because that whole group is going to share these risks. And, and as you mentioned, there are some unique features so far that we see 
Um, there certainly seems to be an age vulnerability. There's certainly disproportionate share of African-Americans that have been exposed and affected by the virus. So there are a lot of those factors that we have to consider. But, but you're absolutely right that those are things that have to factor into our decision making. We know they're of concern to, to those individuals, but, but we're concerned about everyone, right? We, we know that um, no matter what a person's age or, or, or medical history, um, anyone can contract this virus and, and it's not certain what the outcome will be. So I think we just have to do all we can to mitigate the risk for each individual person, uh, no matter who they may be, but, but there will be um, impact on all of those individuals. And I would also stress that, that again, this is about risk mitigation, not elimination. Yeah. We know that we're not going to be able to make the risk zero. I think I've, I said uh, last week in, in, in an interview that, that we expect that there'll be new positive cases that will crop up through the course of a season. And, and we, that's despite everyone doing their part and all the best intent of everyone involved or the best protocols we can put together. I think that's because we know the virus will still be endemic in society. And so it just stands to reason that we will have some new cases that develop. Our job, I think, is to identify them as quickly as we can, make sure we get those people appropriately treated and isolated from the rest of that team environment so that we don't have a chance to spread it around. Well, and along those lines, and again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, if we're going to talk about older men and we're going to talk about African-American men, there are two men that just pop into my mind, one being the Patriots running backs coach. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Ivan Fierce, who I believe is 66 years old, you have the 49ers running backs coach, Bobby Turner, a friend of mine, great man I've known a long time, who I believe at this point in time, if my math is serving me correctly, who is 71 years old, both African-American men, both coaches, would there be any consideration given to certain rules for older coaches like them, particularly an African-American coach where this virus seems to prey more on certain people than others. Yeah, I think we have to look at anything and everything, Adam, that we can do to keep people safe uh, and, and to, to do all reasonable steps uh, to, to, as I said, mitigate risk and, and to uh, protect uh, everyone in the environment. So I think all of those options, all those discussions are, are actively on the table. And I do think uh, you may see uh, individuals that, that decide uh, to change Maybe patterns of behavior. Again, you, you could envision different locations, different levels of exposure that, that could go into situations like that. So I, I think it's on all of us to think creatively about those types of solutions and to really work with uh, individuals to make sure that we're doing all we can to protect them, uh, for, especially those that are in vulnerable populations. But we sort of look at it like everyone on the field and everyone in that team environment is vulnerable, and it's our job to, to do all we can to protect them, to mitigate risk for everyone. I like that. Well, before I let you go, Dr. Sills, again, there are many football fans listening in here, and I think what ultimately people just want to hear is there's going to be football. Are you as confident today as we enter June that there will be football this season as you've been in previous weeks? Where are you on that particular point about how likely we are or aren't to see football this year starting on time? All those questions. We Are we going to have football? Adam, I still do believe we're on track, and I think we're in a good place. Uh, obviously, uh, none of us have a crystal ball, and we have to acknowledge that there's some unique features of this virus that we can't predict. Uh, but if we were to continue to track on the course that we seem to be right now, I feel optimistic about us uh, being back and playing football this fall. 
and on, on the schedule that we've outlined. So that's what we're working toward. That's what we're preparing for. Again, a lot of work, as you mentioned, going in, working very, very collaboratively with the NFL Players Association because we have exactly the same goals uh, in this situation. But, yes, I am still personally very optimistic that we'll be playing football in the fall of 2020. Dr. Sills, thank you for that headline. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom. I always appreciate it, and hopefully we'll get the chance to speak soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate all that you do. And there he is, the NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills. And I'm glad to leave on that upbeat note, a note of optimism, a note of hope for the coming season. That's what I think we have all need at this point in time, just some form of hope that has been so difficult to find these last few weeks and months living through a pandemic and now the protests that we're seeing unfold on an almost daily basis. 2020 will be remembered as a year of the pandemic and protests, I believe, and we're not even halfway through the year just yet. Let's hope that this year can't get any worse and that from this point on, we begin to see the progress we want to see with these protests, with the way human beings are treated, and with the pandemic that we're still fighting in this country and around the world to this day. Thank you to Marcus Spears for joining us today. Thank you for Dr. Alan Sills' time today. Thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. And please join us again next week as we hope to have more upbeat, positive developments for you regarding these protests, the NFL season, and life in general. And until then, everybody, be well, and most important, stay safe.